Welcome to the Landmark Podcast. I'm Jason Calhoun, pastor of Landmark Pentecostal Church in Texarkana, Texas. We encourage you to visit us on the web at landmarkupc.net for a schedule of services and upcoming events. We pray that you are blessed by the message today. Thank you again for listening. Book of Beginnings, Book of Genesis, Chapter Number 15. Genesis chapter number 15, and I want to begin reading there with verse number 5. Genesis chapter 15, and verse number 5. He brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto them, So shall thy seed be. He believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me a heifer of three years old, a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece once one against another. But the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down unto the carcass, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, the Lord speaking, Now or know of surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land, in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterward they shall come out with great substance. And they shall go to thy fathers in peace. And thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, I want you to note that, they shall come hither again. But in the fourth generation, thou shalt come hither again. He tells him that there is going to be a period of time that they're going to experience bondage. He said, the people that you will come out of your loins, your progenitors, they're going to, they're going to experience 400 years of affliction and bondage. But after this, The fourth generation, they shall come hither again. And so for the next little bit, I just want to preach from this subject, the possibilities of a comeback. The possibilities of a comeback. Let's let's lift up our hands to the Lord and let's pray that the Lord would anoint and bless and move in the remainder of this service. Would you join me, Jesus? 
We're asking, God, in your name that you would minister to every need and every request. God, that has come into this place, Lord, every hunger, every desire, every thirst. God, I pray that you would satisfy. I pray, Lord, that you would fill souls with the Holy Ghost. I pray, Lord, those that were praying on their way to church this morning, that you would meet them here. I pray that you would allow them to experience you in a special way. We're asking you, God, to minister to us and help us. We thank you, God, for this opportunity to be in your house. In Jesus' name. I think it's appropriate on this day especially that we really give some high praise to the Lord. Come on, if you know how to praise God, why don't you give him some high praise right now that he's not in the grave. But he is risen. If you're thankful for a Savior that's alive and well this morning, come on, let's worship him together. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Thank you so much for standing, and you may be seated. This is Christianity's most celebrated day. In many ways, it's a great comeback story, and who doesn't enjoy a comeback story? We are all inspired by those who rise above insurmountable odds, incredible deficits, and seemingly invincible situations. We are entertained by reading the comeback stories of heroes and heroines in fiction books, and it's thrilling to read how someone in history who was on the verge of defeat claws their way back to victory. But the Bible has the best comeback stories. It begins in this book that I read to you from this morning in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve, who really encompasses the human story, And represents the whole human family. We know how that when Adam partake of that forbidden tree. That sin entered into the world. Man experienced sin for the first time. And by extension it is passed on to you and I. And fellowship and communion that was so special. And so perfect. And this place and this environment that had been so perfect was considered to be a paradise, the Garden of Eden. Suddenly there's a disruption in that garden as sin comes as an intruder. We know that Adam experienced a relationship with God that he would walk with the Lord in the cool of the day, the Scripture says. In the evening time, he And this appointed time would speak to the Lord as a friend. And as much as it was a period that I believe Adam looked forward to, I have to believe that God also looked forward to his time each day to spend with his friend Adam. And he enjoyed this relationship that he had with this man. But all of that came abruptly to an end. By one choice and one decision. And when God came again for his appointed time to spend with Adam, the scripture says that he posed a question. He said, where art thou, Adam? And that in itself offers me hope 
Because he didn't say, Adam, what have you done? Because it was obvious that Adam, by a choice, had made a mistake. A choice that would cause all mankind to experience the heavy burden of sin. But instead of asking him what he had done, he asked him where he was because God knew that he could only rebuild and restore his relationship with him if he began where he was at. He had to start building from where he was at that moment. So he said, where art thou, Adam? And we know that the Lord took and replaced the fig leaves that he had sown together to hide his sin because man in his attempt always fails to hide and to cover up sin. Only God can eradicate sin. Only God can cover sin. Only God can cleanse sin. And we see here a foretelling of what is to come because it is here that he replaces those fig leaves with a coat of skin indicating that it took the shedding of blood for sin to be covered and for sin to be dealt with. Already we're seeing that it was God's plan from the start that he... I already had a plan from the foundation of the world, the Bible says. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In case you're wondering, Calvary was not option B. Calvary was not just the last alternative. But God knew that man was not able to serve Him in His own strength. And He would need a Savior. He would need the strength of an almighty God. And so in chapter 2, we see a failure. Before things really got started, it seems like they finish. But in Genesis chapter number 4, it says, At that time men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So what looked like was going to end in devastation... What looked like was going to be stopped before it ever got started. We understand that the Lord reveals to us, even at the beginning, that I'm always up for a comeback. I'm always uh, offering an opportunity for mankind to come back to me and be restored and renewed in their relationship with me. That is not the only place that we see it. We see it again and again throughout the scripture. We see it in the eldest book of the Bible, which begins in a bizarre way with uh, the enemy, Satan, coming in along with the other sons of God to present himself before the throne of God. And the scripture says that his presence was immediately recognized, and the Lord called him out. And he asked him a question. He said, from whence thou comest? God, knowing all things, knew exactly what he was up to. He said, I have been walking to and fro in the earth, seeking and looking for someone to devour. And uh, he had been on a search and destroy mission, in other words. And so the Lord poses him yet another question. He said, have you considered, notice the wording there, have you considered my servant Job? And then he begins to brag upon him. I'm going to tell you, there's saints of God that God loves 
their testimony so much that he brags on them. And he begins to brag on Job and say, Have you considered my servant Job how that he's upright? He's a man that fears God and eschews that meant that he hates evil. He lives righteously before me and godly before me. Every day he arises early and gives sacrifice to me for his children. And I have blessed him. Job was known, he had the reputation of being the richest man of the East. He was a man that the abundant blessings of God were upon his life. You could say it this way, that Job had it together economically. Job also had it together socially. And Job had it together spiritually. He walked with God. He lived uprightly before the Lord. He had this testimony. Everybody knew that Job's walk with God was one that was secure and strong and stable and consistent. And he said, well, I have considered him. In fact, you knew when you asked the question how many times I would have loved to have gotten my red-hot pinnacles upon Job and twisted and destroyed his life. But every time that I reached out to Job, I've noticed something. You've got a hedge of protection around him. And I can't touch Job. I can't get to Job. And so the Lord said, I'll make a deal with you. I'll take that hedge down. But you, you can't touch his body. You cannot touch his health. You cannot affect his physical being. And so after the enemy leaves the presence of the Lord, we see in just one day, I guess it would begin in the morning as servant after servant came and knocked on Job's door and said, your camels have been destroyed. And when that servant would leave or just finish off speaking to him and telling him the dreadful news, there would be another that would be waiting to knock on the door and said, your sheep, fire fell from heaven and consumed them all. And your oxen and on and on servant after servant came and knocked on the door of Job with more bad news on top of bad news. Until one came and knocked upon his door and said your children would gather together in your eldest son's home. Having a time of fellowship and celebrating together. And while they were there assembled in that house a wind blew and blew that house asunder. And all of the servants besides I, I alone have escaped to tell thee. Your children perished. Can you imagine parents? All of their servants perished and I am the lone survivor. And I have come to tell you this news. Fully expecting, maybe standing on the sidelines with his arms crossed and a smirk on his face. Satan is thinking to himself, he's not going to be singing the same song of worship that he began the day with when he got up to sacrifice unto the Lord. Surely he's not going to be one that's got his hands lifted and rejoicing in the presence of God. He's not going to have the same desire to pray and to seek God like he has at other times. And he must have been appalled by the response of Job when the Bible says that he 
said, I came into this world naked and I'm going to leave thither in the same condition. But blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm going to tell you then and now, the devil doesn't know what to do with a worshiper. The devil doesn't know what to do with a person that no matter what life circumstances are, no matter what they face, no matter what they go through, they lift their hands and give glory to God and give praise to the Lord and say, devil, you're not going to steal my shout. You're not going to steal my rejoicing. You're not going to steal my praise. But I'm going to give glory to the Lord. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away but blessed be the name of the Lord the devil doesn't know what to do with that I feel like there's some people in this house maybe you've been going through some things you want to surprise Satan this morning throw your hands up in the air and say God I'm going to rejoice today I'm going to celebrate you today I'm going to worship you and give you glory today So ironically, the Bible says that, again, he makes himself known in the presence of the Lord. And he doesn't come with the same prideful, boasting attitude, perhaps, that he came with the first time. I feel like he was like a dog with his tail tucked between his legs. As he realized that Job was stronger than he first thought him to be. And he says, the Lord does the same question he poses to him again. He said, have you considered my servant Job? It's almost humorous at this point. It's almost like he's sticking a knife in and twisting it. Have you considered my servant Job? Well, God, you know why you even have to ask. You know, you know right where I've been. I've been spending all of my time down at Job's address. I've been giving him havoc. I've been doing my best to cause him to curse you. I've been doing my best to cause him to backslide and to walk away from you and to throw in the towel on ever desiring to live for you. You know I've been considering your servant Job. He said, but I got one more proposal for you. If you'll let me touch him skin for skin. You know, if you can affect a man's health, it's not much that a man won't do to protect his health. And if, and if you'll allow me to bring sickness upon him, disease upon him, he'll curse you to your face. And so the Lord said, I'm going to give you permission to do that with one stipulation. Can I just tell you that the enemy... He only works by permission. He can only go as far as the Lord allows him to go. The devil is on a short leash. To hear some people talk and all their trouble with the devil, uh, you wouldn't think that God's in control of anything. But I'm telling you, God's got the devil on a leash. He can only go so far in your life. And he knows what the end of the story can be and will be if you'll trust in him and have faith in him and believe in him and be faithful to him. He said, you, you can go to a certain point, but you can't take his life. And so the next scene of Job's life, we see that he has broke out in boils from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. And he's in anguish and in pain, suffering with this condition. And the Bible says that he's in the ash and ruins of what used to be. 
And he's got a broken piece of pottery and he's scraping himself with all, trying to find some relief from all of these infected sores that are on his body. And four people in his life that he most depended upon, relied upon, trusted in, three of them being his closest friends came by and said, Job, do you understand that God doesn't do this to people he loves. God doesn't allow this to people that are blessed by him. God doesn't allow this to happen to people that really live for him. There must be hidden sin in your life. You must be doing something wrong. There must be something the rest of us don't know about. Can I tell you that as well as the devil can speak in your ear, he can use somebody else to speak in your ear. And most of the time he's going to use somebody else to speak to you. And these people that he was depending on to be his encourager. These people that he was depending on to lift him up in a time when he was down. These people that he was depending on to, uh, to raise him up and prop him up in this time of need. One by one, those three friends ridiculed him. The Bible even says that they sat down and stared at him for seven days and said nothing. He was expecting words of encouragement. He was expecting them uh, to, to say, Job, come on, man. You can make it. You, you can do this. You, you, you're going to survive. You're going to come out of this. You're going to be blessed. You're a child of God. Instead, for, for the first seven days, they just stared at him before they said anything. And finally, when they got enough gumption to speak, it wasn't encouraging words, but it was railing accusation that they brought against him. I think if somebody sat down and looked at me for seven days when I was in need like that, I don't know if I'd have had the patience of Job. I might have had to respond a little bit to that. But previous to these three, I suppose his closest companion and confidant in life, his wife, came by. Now, before we get too hard on Job's wife, I want you to understand that she was watching someone that she loved, someone that she cared about, sick and suffering and in pain. And she was watching him dwindle down to nothing and watched him go from being a prestigious man, the richest man of the East, to having nothing and all the shame that would go along with that. And so she said to him, as if she was suggesting this is the only way you can expedite this situation. You need to curse God and die. Just get it over with. Just give up. Quit the fight. Just surrender. And he said to her, his reply was, you speak like a foolish woman. Because if you really understood my God, you would understand that that's not an option. That if I'll continue to have faith, I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen. I just know that it is going to happen. And I'm going to trust the Lord. Amen. I don't understand what's going on. The Lord giveth, lady, and the Lord taketh away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm not going to curse God. I'm going to worship God. I'm going to give praise to the Lord. I'm going to have faith in Him. 
And the Bible tells us in the ending chapter of Job's life, amen, it says, so the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. He had more children. He got greater possessions. He had greater blessings than he went into the trial with. He had a comeback in his life. I've come to preach to somebody. It doesn't matter what it looks like right now. Along with the prophet Micah, I tell you, rejoice not against me, oh mine enemy, for when I fall, I'm going to make a comeback. I'm going to get back up again. I'm not going to stay in defeat. I'm not going to stay in condemnation. I'm not going to live in fear. I'm not going to continue to be intimidated. I am going to worship the Lord. Let's give praise to him right now. That's not, that's a good one, but that's not the only one. Samson. Oh, Samson, one of the most famous judges of the book of Judges. Now, when we think of a judge, we think of that man or woman in a bright black robe and sitting behind a dais and executing judgment upon somebody concerning their wrongs or arbitrating between two parties. And I, I, I guess, I suppose that, that Samson had some of those responsibilities or the judges that are spoken of here may have had some of those responsibilities. But these were men and women before the times of the prophets that were used of God and lifted up and raised up to lead God's people into great victory. Because you understand, after they entered into the promised land and when things got good for them, that they went into a cycle of, of, of living for God and being, being sold out for God. And then when things would get to going good and they were blessed, they would kind of renege on their commitments and step back away from their uh, desire and vow to the Lord. And, and uh, they would fall in the hands of their enemy and God would begin to stir them up by allowing their enemies to come in upon them. And they would turn back to him and cry out to him and repent of their sins. And God would use these judges to lead armies against the enemies of Israel and bring them to victory. And Samson was such a judge. The hand of God, even from the time he was born, because of a vow that his parents made unto the Lord, a Nazarite vow. And I don't have the time to go into all of the areas of consecration, but there were many that that he would... Consecrate himself, a unique vow before the Lord. And God, in turn, blessed this man with supernatural strength. I see a lot of pictures drawn of Samson, and he's some kind of Herculean man. I mean, he's huge, you know, muscle-bound, look like a bodybuilder. But, you know, if he had looked like that, everybody would have known where his strength came from, where his strength lie. But he looked like every other man, I believe. Because it wasn't his abilities, it wasn't his human strength or his human physical body that was able to achieve victories and overcome enemies. It was the supernatural anointing of God that was upon his life. We read about times that he took a jawbone of a donkey and slew a thousand Philistines and left their bodies on heaps in piles. 
we read about a time when he took the city gates of Gaza and he marched them up a hill on his back. A man of supernatural strength. We, we read about times when he defeated the Philistines and even when he got entangled with Delilah. When, when the Philistines would come, and we know for the first several times he did not tell the fullness of his heart to her, and she tried to deceive him. And, and when you read this story, you want to say, wake up, man. Don't you understand what's going on and what's happening? She's, she, she's going to sap your strength from you, and for long, you're going to give up your consecration to the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. But each time they would come upon him, he would shake himself and the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him and, and he was able to defeat the Philistines that had came to incarcerate him. But finally when he divulged where that secret source of strength was, the Scripture says that when the Philistines came upon him, he shook himself like as in other times, but he wished not that the Spirit of the Lord was departed from him. He, he didn't recognize that the anointing was not there anymore. And they took him just like a child and placed him in prison. And they made him work, grinding as a beast their grain. And uh, they poked both of his eyes out. And they shaved his head. And this was one of his consecrations that brought strength upon Samson. But they did not realize that over this period of time of his imprisonment, that his hair began to grow, the scripture says. And while he was there, I believe every day, reminded of his failure and his poor choices and his mistakes, he began to repent. He began to ask God to give him another chance. And so when the time came that the Philistines wanted to celebrate this champion that they had taken into incarceration, they wanted to make sport of him, the Bible says, and bring him out like a buffoon and, and like a clown to entertain them before that multitude of people that were gathered there. And uh, the, the, the lad, the boy came to, to lead him out because again he was blind. And he said, I want you to take me to the place where the pillars are, where upon this house stands. I, I want you to lead me to that place. And when he felt around and he got a hold of those pillars and there was those jeering crowds that were out there and they were railing against him and ridiculing and laughing and they were in their drunken condition all celebrating and having a party. It was Samson that bowed his head in his condition and got a hold of those pillars. And he said, Lord, I know I've made some mistakes. I know I have failed you. But only this once, only this once, if you'd allow me to have just one more victory, if you'd allow me to feel your anointing just one more time, if you'd give me just one more touch, I want to see victory for you again. And the Bible said that he was able through the strength that God gave him to pull that house down on top of them all. And so the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. He had a comeback. As bad as the situation was, while the enemy was laughing, while the enemy was condemning, while the enemy was saying it's not possible, while the enemy was ridiculing and pointing their fingers, there was a man that said, if you give me a comeback, God, if you give me an opportunity, God, if you'll allow me to repent, if you give me one more 
chance. I want to get back up and do something for you. I want to be something in your kingdom. I don't want it to end like this. I don't want it to go down in the annals of history like this. I want to have a comeback in my life. Let's give him some praise right now across this place. So in our text, Scripture says that Abraham, who held a special relationship with God, the Bible says that he was a friend of God. And we see this illustrated many times, this intimate relationship that he had with the Lord before God would rain judgment down upon Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, i got to consult with my friend. That's the kind of relationship that Abram had with God. And so there come a point, there was a strike between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abraham. And he said, hey, we're brethren here. This doesn't need to be happening. And Abraham chose the blessings of God over strife. Abraham made a choice that I'm not going to fight, but if God's hand is upon me, you can't fight me. I don't have to fight for myself if I have the blessings of God upon my life. And so he chose to allow Lot to choose which direction he wanted to go. And Lot, a carnal man, a sensual man, a man that uh, had no real spiritual acumen whatsoever, looked out upon the well-watered plains of Jordan and the cities that lie beyond, and he said, man, that looks like the way to go right there. That's an obvious choice. He said, I'll go this way. But Abram knew if God promised me that he was going to bless me, if God promised me that he was going to give me children that were named with the stars and the sands of the sea, I can understand it didn't matter which direction I go or what choice I make concerning this. If I just follow God and stay faithful to God and stay consecrated to God, I'm going to come out on top. I'm going to come out a winner. And the Bible says that it was after this that God reiterated His promise. And it's in the in the first few verses of this chapter, chapter 15, that God said, I'm going to be an exceeding great reward to you. I'm going to be a shield from your enemies. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to watch you. You don't have to worry about things. I've got my hand hand on you. You're favored by me. But I want you to understand something. There's going to be those that are going to come after you. There are those. I know you can't see it now. You don't understand how it's going to happen, but you're 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 going to have a, a generation that's going to come after you that's coming out of your loins that is going to be numbered with the stars of the sky and the sands that are beneath your feet. I know it's impossible to fathom, but when that time comes, trust me it will. It's going to happen but there's going to be a generation that's going to rise and they're going to go into Egyptian bondage and there for 400 years in Egyptian bondage they're going to go out they're going to go in rather a handful of people they're going to go in just a few of them but it's in hardship and it's in struggle and it's in bondage that I'm going to show that I can bless no matter what the enemy does. I come to preach to somebody here today. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world. It doesn't matter what the government says. It doesn't matter what the economy's doing. If you got the favor of God upon your life, you can always come out. You will always emerge. You will always be victorious. You will always be on top. God's blessings will always be there in your life. 
Oh, somebody clap your hands and let's give some praise to it. Pharaoh. The Bible says there arose a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph. We, we understand that he began to look around and see how that they were multiplying. And he said, hey, if we're not careful, if we don't manage this situation right, these Israelites are going to rise up and overthrow their bondage. So I want you, I want you to put more strain upon them. I want you to work them harder. And the Bible says the more they work them and the more they, they ruled them with rigor, the more they multiplied and the more they grew. Isn't that just like the enemy? The more he fights against, the more he persecutes, the more he tries to struggle against you. If you keep your faith in God, amen, you always have a testimony that God brings triumph, that God brings victory, that God helps you through, that God continues to bless. He said, well, we, we gotta, we, we gotta up the ante here a little bit. We gotta do a little bit more. Uh, let, let, let's, uh, let's tell, tell the midwives, uh, the Egyptian midwives, every boy child, every male that is born to them, I want you to take it as soon as you recognize that it's a male. I want you to take that baby and throw it in the, in the Nile and let the crocodiles have it. And, uh, the Bible tells us, uh, that, uh, when they, they tried to, to, to kill those babies uh, that the Egyptian women, they had respect uh, for, for the Israelites and they recognized the God that they served as a God that, that had a blessing and anointing upon them and they refused to do it. And when Pharaoh come back and recognized that this was going on, he said, I make a decree that every male child be slain and killed and thrown into the river Nile. And uh, how miraculous it was that one child, Moses, uh, his parents seeing that he was a proper child, hit him in that, in that same river where others met their fate and he was saved and he was spared and the time came that God one by one ten of them brought plagues upon Egypt miracle after miracle but the Bible said while it was dark over the land of Egypt that there was light in Goshen God kept his people God protected his people God led his people God brought his people out until finally the scripture says that Pharaoh set them free and drew them out of bondage and told them to leave that place of Egypt. When they left, they went out into the wilderness. Of course, Pharaoh changed his mind. And the scripture tells us uh, that when they got to the Red Sea, they had Pharaoh behind them, a wilderness on either side of them, and a Red Sea before them. What are we going to do now? And God spoke to Moses and said, you remember that rod that you threw down on the marble corridors of the palace and it turned into a serpent? You remember that rod that you lifted up over that that uh, river and it became blood? You take that same rod and lift it up over this sea and I'm going to tell you that there will be a highway breathe right through the middle of it. I'm going to deliver my people. It doesn't matter what it looks like right now. They're going to come back and they're going to come back strong. They're not going to come out frail and weak. But the Bible says when they walked across through the Red Sea, there was not a feeble one. After 40 or 400 years of bondage, after 400 years of being ruled with rigor, when they came out on the other side, they came out rejoicing. They came out alive with worship. They came out praising with timbrels in their hands, singing a song and rejoicing and giving praise unto the Lord. 
He said, I don't care what it looks like. I'm telling you now, Abram, there's going to be over 400 years of it. But a fourth generation is going to make a comeback. There's going to be a fourth generation that is going to come out in victory. They're going to come out strong. They're going to come out with my blessings upon them. My hand is upon their life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But the greatest, the greatest comeback of all is the one that we celebrate here today. We know that Jesus was born in humble beginnings, the town of Bethlehem. We understand that he was raised in Nazareth in a carpenter's shop. And the religious and the high church at that day looked down their nose and said, Is he not the carpenter's son? He's not a king. He's not a ruler. He doesn't have any power. He's just a common builder, carpenter. And after 30 years of living as a common man among common people, one day John the Baptist looks up and he said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. I baptize you with water under repentance, but he's coming. and He's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And he must increase, and I must decrease. And from that moment, the emergence of Jesus Miracle after miracle, blind eyes being opened and deaf ears being unstopped. 5,000 being fed. The lame rising up, taking up their bed and walking for the first time. Over and over again, miracle after miracle after miracle. And after about three and a half years, he tells his disciples and closest followers, he said, I gotta, I gotta warn you of something that's coming that you may not understand. I know we're having high church right now. I know that we're seeing blessings right now. I understand that we're in the midst of miracles right now. I understand that we're, we're seeing victory after victory right now. But I want you to understand that there's a day coming that's going to get dark and you're going to feel alone. And there's a day coming when it's going to seem like that I've left you. But I want you to understand that I've not left you. I'm doing a work for you. I want you to understand that while I may not be physically present with you, you have to understand that I've not gone away. And I, amen, I want you to understand that I'll be with you always, even to the end of the world. And so he said in John, amen, he says in the book of John, Chapter number 21, he tells, uh, he tells them, he, he says in the book of John chapter 2 verses 19, verse 19, excuse me, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And these religious leaders of the day, they're scratching their head and they're wondering what in the world is he talking about? Doesn't he understand that this is Solomon's uh, temple? Doesn't he understand that this is an exceeding magnificent place? Doesn't 
they understand that it took 46 years to fashion these stones and put them in their place, overlay all this furniture with gold and get everything just right for the dedication of this house. It took 46 years in building and he's saying in three days he'll raise it up again. It's an impossibility. And they really, they really didn't realize that he was talking about his earthly body. He was talking about his body, the temple. Amen. He said, you destroyed this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. They didn't understand it. They thought that they were comprehending and following what he was trying to say and what he was trying to prepare them for. And he tells them over and over again about the crucifixion. One of the most tormenting, gruesome, inhumane ways that a person could die in that, in that age, in that time, was to die by crucifixion. And we know that before he ever went to the cross, that they beat him until his visions, visage was so marred that they could not recognize him. Fulfilling the scripture that they saw no beauty in him. They didn't see him as a king. They seen him as a defeated, beaten man. Stripped before his creation. Placed upon a cross. Spikes driven through his hands and feet. And as he struggled with each breath to hasten the process, they put a spear in his side. And from his side, blood and water flowed. And when he was offered a sedative to take away some of the pain, and they placed it to his lips, and he realized what it was that they were offering him, he sped it out. He didn't try to take any of the agony away. He didn't try to sidestep any of the pain that he was experiencing. And he did it all for you and I. Because he realized that this was the supreme sacrifice. The blood that would not just cover sin or push sin ahead to another year, another time. You understand that throughout all of the Old Testament, all of those hundreds of years of sacrifices, bullocks and lambs and turtle doves that were offered, all that did was leave a mounting debt of sin that had to be reconciled. And in just one supreme sacrifice, all of it was cleansed. The opportunity for all of it was washed away. All of it, amen, was not just covered, but the opportunity and the possibility was there for it to totally be washed away. And the scripture says that when he finally gasped his last breath and cried, it is finished! When he said it was finished, To the Roman soldiers that were there, they may have thought that their job was over. To the crowd that was gathered, they may have walked away wagging their head and saying, well, he put up a pretty good fight. But when he said it was finished, that veil that separated man from God for hundreds of years that was in the temple, the Bible said that it was rent in twain. And there was no separation between the holiest of holies and the outer court that was open to anybody to come. It was an invitation to anyone to receive an experience and to have this supreme sacrifice, if you will, applied 
to their life. So in essence, when he said it was finished, really life just began for you and I. It is through him saying what he said on the cross and him finishing the work of Calvary and him not sidestepping the issue and him not saying, I just I just want this cup to pass. And matter of fact, I'm not going to drink of this cup of sin and I'm not going to go through this torment and I'm not going to go to Calvary. I'm going to opt out of this. Had he done that, we would have never experienced life and life more abundantly. We would have never experienced the life-giving power of the Holy Ghost. But the reason we can celebrate today and the reason we can rejoice today before there had to be before there could be a resurrection there had to be a death there had to be a calvary there had to be someone that would suffer there had to be a god that would robe himself in flesh and come as a common man and bleed and die as a sacrificial lamb so that you and i can experience what you and i experience today The Bible said they all forsook him and fled. It was a dark hour. Darkness fell upon the sky. As it seems like even creation is bowing its head. And they took the body of Jesus and placed him in a borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And you talk about three miserable days. Three miserable days of darkness and discouragement for those disciples. It's over. I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's going on. I thought we'd finally found him. I I understood that we finally recognized and accepted him as the Messiah. And everything was going so good in my life was going so well and now it's seemed like in just a little bit of time it's all been torn apart. The scripture says in those three days there were some that said, well I might as well just go back and uh, go back to my lifestyle and what I was doing before. There were some that were walking down the road saying I can't believe it and why this is happening and why this is taking place and I don't get it. But just like he said he would do, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. The Bible tells us that when those three ladies came to that tomb, fully expecting to find the dead body of Jesus and to prepare it with spices, the Scripture says that they were wondering how we're going to move the stone. And they didn't recognize that God was able to help them with every obstacle that was in their life. And when they got there, they noticed that the stone was rolled away. And they saw the messenger angel there that spoke to them and said, He is not here. Very simply, you came looking for one thing, but this is not where you're going to find him. He is not here, but he has risen. He has done exactly what he said he would do. And I want you to go tell. Go tell. I want you to go tell his disciples. Amen. I don't believe that just meant the twelve. I believe that that meant all of his followers. You go tell his disciples and Peter. Amen. And the Bible tells us that they were afraid and they told no man. I told you this last Wednesday night that there's anything that needs to be shouted from the rooftop. If there's anything that the church needs to be talking about, if there's anything that the church amen, needs to show with their worship, is a resurrection. Amen. A live Savior. A live Savior. 
A Savior that is not in the tomb, but a Savior that is alive. Don't let fear hold back your worship. Don't let intimidation hold back your worship. But we got a reason to be enthusiastic and give praise to God. Would you stand with me right now? All across this place, let's raise our hands to the Lord. Let's give praise to the Lord. Let's give thanks to the Lord. The Apostle Paul said these things. He said these things were written as examples. and Written for our admonition for whom the ends of the world has come. You know what he was saying? He was saying, when you read the stories of the Scripture, he said, you need to put yourself in the shoes of those people that have already been there. You need to imagine yourself in their place. Because if Adam can have a comeback, you can have a comeback. And if Joe can experience a comeback, you can experience a comeback. And if Samson can experience a comeback, you can experience a comeback. And if the children of Israel can experience a comeback, you can experience a comeback. Poor choices, bad decisions, mistakes along the way may have taken us on detours and may have taken us places that we never intended to go. We become entangled with things we never intended to be entangled with. But I'm thankful that we don't have to stay there. And that's what Calvary is all about. That's what this Resurrection Sunday is all about. Because he said in Romans chapter 8, I love this passage of Scripture. In verse 11 it says, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. And he later said in verse 14, or 13 on down in the passage, he said, But if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you live through the Spirit, and if you live according to the Spirit, through the Spirit, you're able to mortify the deeds of the body. We shall live. I will tell you, it doesn't matter how much of a grip that sin seems to have on your life. It doesn't matter what kind of a hold it seems that sin has upon your mind. The Holy Ghost, that same Spirit that raised up Christ from the dead. The Bible said it's able to dwell in you. You're able to experience your own hope this morning. You're able to experience your own, your own spiritual resurrection, if you will. You're dead in trespasses and sin, but you don't have to, you don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay bound. You don't have to stay defeated. But you can live. You can be alive for the help of Jesus Christ. I just wonder as we're going to open up these altars today. I wonder if there's somebody that'd like to experience that same spirit, the Holy Ghost power that raised up Jesus from the dead is in this room this morning. It's in this place right here today.